Hello, podcast listeners. It's Marie and Brittany from Four and Half at the Property Management Show. Today's guest is Keith Becker, and what is he going to talk about? He's going to talk to us about AB 1482. Just kind of some preliminary information, what to expect. So if you're interested, stick around and listen to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by PM Growth Summit. It is the annual conference for growth-minded property managers. Our 2020 conference is brought to you by Four and Half Property Management Marketing Agency in partnership with Seacoast Commerce Bank, the preferred bank for property management trust accounts. The next PM Growth Summit will be in Austin, Texas, from May 27 to 29, 2020. Go to pmgrowsummit.com to register. We always like to start it off with thanking. Our speaker for joining us. So Keith, thank you for joining us. We're so happy to of have course. you. We are. We you know how much we love you. So we always like talking with you. Um, obviously, you are like he- you're heavily involved in NARPM. So um, especially like in Santa Rosa. So people- in the NARPM. In the, in the NARPM. <laughs> in the NARP NARP. Um, <laughs> so we like to start off with just an introduction, telling us about yourself. For people that don't know you, don't know the key. Wow. Okay. Been doing this for 25 years. Um, the company that I run has been around for nearly 50. Um, even after all these years, I still love what I do. Um, at certain points, at different points in my career, you talked about the NARPM. And I've been the president of the California State chapter of NARPM. I've been a regional vice president for Hawaii and California. Life is tough. And I'm presently a board member for um, the North Bay area. And I'm on the board in California Apartment Association. Um, so in my free time, when I'm, not, when I'm not here working, in my free time, a lot of involvement and all of this stuff that's happening throughout the industry. Lots of stuff. Well, that's good. That's a wonderful starting point. Um, you get around, as I as I was saying, <laughs> which is good. Yeah. And because you get around, um, your insights are definitely um, worth listening to. Yes. And you know, the reason why um, we have you today on the podcast is because we want to talk to you about AB. 1482, also known as the California Tenant Protection Act, also known as the bane in probably most property managers' existence in California right now. Maybe the bane in most landlords' uh, existences (laughs) that haven't been increasing rent for years and years and years. mm -hmm. Um, And so can you share with our listeners today, um, you know, what what this is and why it's being considered like the minimum standard um, right now. So AB 1482, they call it the Tenant Protection Act. um, And whatever euphemisms they try to use, it is rent control. A couple of things, uh, two, two things to start with. One, we're heavily, heavily into legal stuff with this whole topic today. Um, and like most of your audience, I'm a property manager, I'm not an attorney. Um, a lot of this has legal implications in terms of how you understand it, how you execute it, and what the results are. So, 
you got a legal question, talk to an attorney, not just attorney, but talk to an attorney who specializes in landlord-tenant law, because this is complicated and only going to get worse. Um, secondly, man, there's so much politics. What we're talking about today is process. Process meaning this has already happened. But the political side of it is this is as bad as it gets until and unless the law changes again. And the until and unless is the threat that Costa Hawkins, which is one of the primary uh, housing laws in California, if Costa Hawkins gets overturned at some point in the future, then all hell's gonna break loose. But this is what we're looking at now and setting aside the politics side of this, we're here to talk about process. Um, this is rent control. It is the baseline for any sort of rent control ordinances throughout California. When I say baseline, there's nothing that is less onerous. And the concept of you know, onerous is if it is more problematic and difficult for owners and more favorable for tenants. Okay, you can make it more favorable for tenants than what AB 1482 will allow, but you can never make it less favorable. Okay, any city throughout, uh, throughout California. And you can have cities who already have laws that are in place that are more arduous than AB 1482, in which case those cities, uh, their more stringent laws apply. They can be passed at some point in the future and those more stringent laws will apply. For example, Richmond, and, and what's weird is basically there are different aspects of this new law and you can have something where AB 1482 suddenly brings up something that was more generous from another, from another city or the city's got something more difficult and that one stays in, 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 a, in a compliance. For example, Richmond. Richmond has a law that basically says you cannot raise rents more than CPI. CPI is a consumer price index. It's, it's basically uh, inflation rate. This new law, AB 1482, says the increase is 5% plus CPI. You would think that that would mean for Richmond that basically suddenly Richmond homeowners are allowed to ask for more. No. Richmond's is more restrictive on owners, more generous to tenants, so Richmond's obligation of only CPI is what the law is. However, same city, Richmond says that their law only applies to properties that were built before 1995. AB 1482 says it applies to any properties that are 15 years or more all other things being equal. So those properties that hadn't been under this ordinance before are now pulled in because AB 1482 is now the law. You follow that? Is this nuts? It's a I, well, I need an algorithm. Like, I feel like I, I don't want, <laughs> like, if this, then that. It's yes. Because I can see why somebody would be confused and say, oh, I have to go with this one for this. You must know AB 1482, but in, in addition to that, you must know what your local laws are. 
because your local laws could actually be built on top of AB 1482 and it could be worse. So you could technically have, say you own four rental properties, two of them you would could potentially have to follow the local legislation and two of them you could follow or may have to oblige to the AB 1482, is that, is that possible? Well, um, you, you have to abide by 1482 across the board. If, Fair point. If you have, let's just say, if you've got a portfolio of 100 properties, you have to look at each one of those properties individually. You can't make a blanket assessment of, oh, well, my portfolio, all of them fall under certain terms. You have to look at each one of them individually. If you've got investment properties and they are in different cities throughout California, they may not be handled the same way, dependent upon where they are in the cities of, Santa Rosa, uh, cities of California. And so for property managers, who, especially those that have a bigger service area, it's more um, important, especially now, to be intimately familiar, not just with the new state law, but the individual city laws. Right. Well, and especially, that's crazy, especially in places like, well, just in California, because there are so many little pockets, like you said. Uh, let's imagine that you've got a, a portfolio and it's 100 properties. And you're going to need to look at each one of those properties independently and individually to determine whether they do or they do not qualify um, for exemptions under AB 1482. Okay, so the exemptions, and there are a couple of exemptions that basically are automatic. Automatic, okay? Commercial. Commercial properties, this doesn't apply to commercial properties at all. Tourist or hotel accommodations are exempt. Hospitals, religious facilities, extended care facilities, elder residential care facilities, um, dorms owned and operated by colleges or by boarding schools, deed restricted, deed restricted is specific, very low, low or moderate affordable housing, or housing that is already subject to a more protective rent control ordinance, as I just mentioned about Richmond, okay? These properties, the ones that I just listed, they are automatically, by statute, excluded from 1482, okay? So you're talking about your algorithm. You look at all of your portfolio of 100 properties. If any of them fall under these categories, you can set them aside. The fact is, most of these are not what our audience manages. So they're, they're obscurities, and for most of our audience, it's not an issue. The next, in this algorithm, the next formula that you need to take into consideration is the age of the property in question. Because one of the criteria of 1482, and it's a bit of a, a bait and switch, let's just say. Because the bait and switch is, that AB 1482 is written with an expiration date of 2030. It's supposed to only last for 10 years. Okay. Okay. And the worry is, oh my word, rent control. Nobody's going to invest in properties. Nobody's going to build any new properties in California because we've got rent control. Oh, so what we will do is we will create an exclusion for the first 15 years of any building, any residence, the first 15 years under no circumstances does AB 1482 apply. 
And that doesn't matter whether it is a single family residence, whether it is a multi-unit building with 186 units, whether it's owned by a corporation, whether it's owned by a REIT, whatever. The first 15 years are a free pass. So just to, I do have a question just to clarify. Uh -huh. It's the first 15 years on like a new constructed property. It's not exactly. 15 years after you buy the property. No, you got that correct. And what's the, 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 our audience is used to uh, Costa Hawkins and the regulations stating that it is for any property that is pre-February 1st of 1995. Anything, at any time before 1995, okay? The thing about this 15-year exclusion is that it is a rolling date. And the problem furthermore is there's not an easy way for most homeowners to establish what that starting date is. Because the starting date is actually the date that the initial certificate of occupancy was registered. So if you've got a property, and we, I live in Cal, I live in Santa Rosa, and Santa Rosa had 5,200 houses burned in 2017. And some of them are coming back on. And I have a duplex that was finished last summer. And the certificate of occupancy was created and registered as of July 16th of 2019. That's my starting point. The 15 years starts as of July 16th of 2019. Okay. So if you've got a property that you pull the assessor's office and it says it was built in 2006, when, when in 2006 was it built? When does your exemption end? I don't think that our city organizations, our city offices are quite ready to be able to easily make this information available to the people who need it. Yeah. You look stunned. I will. I'm, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like... it most certainly is. Yes, they did not make this easy. I have a property that was built in 2006 and we just had the tenant move in. And for the first year on the contract, it says it's exempt. However, next year, if they renew the lease, it's not exempt. It can change midstream. Well, and can it become non-exempt halfway through the lease? Or does it follow through to the end of the term of the agreement? You know how I said about law? <laughs> Come on, Keith. What's going to happen is basically many of these types of questions are going to be established by litigation. Because if a property is exempt at the beginning of a 12-month period, but the certificate of occupancy was somewhere in between, you could find yourself at the time that the lease is first written stating the property is presently exempt, but as of a certain date in the future it will become non-exempt. And the issue of how you want to write those contracts, if we have enough time, and we may not have enough time, but the concept of writing those types of contracts becomes really important. We talked about 15-year exemptions. Yes. Okay, and here's your algorithm. And the algorithm basically is you exclude all of those non-residentials. Mm -hmm. And then the second algorithm is, is it 15 years or less? If it is less than 15 years, it is presently exempt, okay? 
and there's there there's an obligation there's a requirement associated with maintaining your exemption so let's presume then that it is more than 15 years the next question in the algorithm is it a single family residence or is it a multi-unit residence okay and a condominium for purposes of this conversation a condominium is treated the same way as a single family residence okay um if it is a single family residence then you have this substrata question single family residence or condominium is on the face of it exempt but there are exclusions is your single family residence or is your condominium owned by a REIT real estate investment trust is it owned by a corporation or is it owned by an LLC in which one of the members of the LLC is a corporation why would that be a question in the collapse of the market back in 2008 you had companies like uh, Blue Mountain and uh, Homes for America and these large corporations who came in and swept through California buying single-family residences for pennies on the dollar turning them into rentals and basically making bank okay there are, are an extraordinary number of single-family residences that are now owned by investment firms and the way that AB 1482 was written was to say you corporations you investment firms do not get the benefits of this but the mom and pops who own a single-family residence that they used to live in that they have now moved out of and they are using as a rental they get the benefit okay make sense yeah. So if it's a re, if it's a, uh, a corporation, if it's an LLC with a, a corporation as one of the members, it is not exempt. If it is a single-family residence owned by an individual, and it could very well be a family trust. Okay, that's not a corporation. Okay, that's not a REIT. If you don't know what a REIT is, you don't have one. Okay, um, if it is not owned by a corporation, you are exempt. Okay. If we have the time, I want to come back to how you protect your exemption because you can lose your exemption. Okay. So if you, if it is not a single family residence, then you're looking at the next question in the algorithm. Is it a duplex or a property with two units and you, the owner reside in one half of the property? If the answer is yes, you are still exempt, okay? As long as you, the owner, occupied that portion of the property at the initiation of the contract and you remain your occupancy as your primary residence throughout the entirety of the residence. If you move out, even though you live there at the time the contract started, if you move out, you lose your exemption. Okay. okay? And this applies to duplexes. It applies to main houses with a granny unit. It applies to single-family residences with an ADU in the garage, an ADU in the backyard. Okay. It applies to any of those. Okay. So those are for practical purposes, and there's a little bit more granularity when it comes to things like share rentals. You are the homeowner, and it's almost a boarding, uh, a boarding type of a relationship. But 
I don't manage any of those types of properties. I can't imagine any of our uh, uh, audience managers. It's messy. Yeah. That would be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, those also have certain dynamics, but for the purposes of our discussion today, what remains is non-exempt. Okay. And that was, you know, there, there was this whole flow chart here. And I don't know whether on your podcast, you're able to share documents along with just us talking, but some of this can and should be supported by documentation. Yeah. Yeah. The next step is certainly should be supported by documentation. Why? I mentioned the single family residences and that they are exempt, but you can lose your exemption. The reason is because AB 1482 was written to say, even for properties that are exempt, you, the landlord, you, the owner, must notify your resident if it's a new contract, if it's a new move-in, you have to put it into the new lease. If it is an existing resident, you have to provide to them in writing, and damned if this law doesn't spell out 12-point font. It does say that. It says you must put it in the... Our contracts are nine. Everything in our contract is nine-point font except for this, which is... And it says specifically what it must say, and it... I can read it to you. It's, 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 it's mumbo jumbo because it has to say exactly the verbiage. And if you don't put the verbiage in exactly as it is written in the law, you've not done it properly. This property is not subject to the rent limits imposed by section 1947.12 of the civil code. It is not subject to the just cause requirements of section 1946.2 of the civil code. The property meets the requirements of section 1947.2 D5 and 1946.2 E8 of the civil code and the owner is not any of the following. One, a real estate investment trust as defined by section 856 of the internal revenue code. Two, a corporation. Or three, a limited liability company in which at least one member is a corporation. You want to attach this to the podcast. It has to say exactly that. I can hold it up to the camera. Um, it has to say exactly that. It must be in 12-point font. Now, so we should auto-tune that, number one. Secondly... Oh, that was fun. <laughs> so I'm an auctioneer in my part-time job. That is for... Or, I just want to make sure I understand. That is for exempt? That is for exempt. To so, keep yourself yeah. exempt. To keep you yourself exempt, you have to put it if in you your agreement. So, so if it's, sorry, I'm like, may, and tell me if I'm getting too much into logistics right now. But if it is, again, if it's like halfway through the lease, you have to send them, do you send them an addendum with that in it? Do you if it is halfway through a lease, and we are talking about a lease with a fixed term. 12 month term, the, yeah, whatever. At yeah. the end of the lease, you have to send them something and either they have to sign it or you want to be sure that you provide this to them, them being your resident, in a way that you can prove, prove, that you can prove it was provided, okay? We treated this the same way we would a three-day notice. Okay, wow. meaning that we did a nail and mail because with the number of properties that we have, getting all my tenants to come in and sign all of these documents would have been a nightmare. 
So we basically, from an efficiency standpoint, said, okay, we're treating it like a three-day notice. One copy is first-class mail. One copy is taken out to the property. Knock, knock, knock. Tenant's not home. Tape to the door. And then we have the proof of service that basically acknowledges that that's exactly what we did. Because if you don't include this, if the tenant comes back in eight years and says, you know, I never got that disclosure, every rent increase that was subject, that was post you know, the, the, the notice period, theoretically can be scrutinized. Your ability to give notice to the tenant can be scrutinized and limited. And if there was one warning that I would basically be able to broadcast as widely as possible, your audience is smart. Your audience is knowledgeable. However, the people they work with may not be knowledgeable. Imagine Aunt Velma, who's 78 years old and has had this property, this residence, this single family home since 1972. And for the last 50 years, it's been pretty simple. There hasn't been a whole lot of drama. And she goes along thinking everything's fine. And she doesn't realize that she's obligated to do this. And you know, six years from now, something happens and somebody comes to her and says, hey, what about this disclosure you were supposed to provide? And she's like, what are you talking about? There are, are a lot of people who need to, even though they may nominally be exempt, they need to learn this and they need to understand it and they need to execute it. And even if it means that you as a property manager can help owners as a exclusive bespoke service help them create the letters and help them create the process just to get this done, do it. That's basically, there's a lot of people who if they do not figure this out fast are gonna be terribly surprised because they think they're excluded, they think they're exempt, and they're not. Surprise. Yeah, it's just a lot to take in. Brittany, you look shocked. I mean, it's it's funny, I do look shocked. I. I, I I, everything you've said so far, like the facts I've known, but then you, you share the stories and it just puts everything into perspective a little bit more. It's one thing to read information online and watch other videos and try to like get a grasp on what it means, but you can't, you can't really tell it without telling a story or telling some type of anecdote to make you actually see it from a real person's perspective. It just, uh, yeah, we're, it's crazy. Cause I feel we're, like we're at the first mile. We're at the first mile of a marathon. The fact is that this has been passed. January 1st was when it went into effect today. We're talking and it's January 21st. Yeah. Um, how all of this actually works out in the real world has to be tested, okay? Has to be established, um, is, is gonna be litigated in some instances. So, um, so we talked about your exempt properties and how to protect your exemption. Then you've got the non-exempt. Uh, and, and coming back to um, your duplexes where the owner lives in the property, again, you have to disclose this. You have to provide the exemption notice to your resident and be able to prove that you did so. If you move out, however, okay, you the owner live in one half of the duplex and it is your primary residence and then you move out, you now have to change the terms and give them a different type of verbiage. 
And again, AB 1482 tells you what you must say, how you awesome. must write it, 12 point font, yada, yada, yada. Um, if you were to have a duplex and one half of it was occupied and the other half was also a resident, that resident moved out and you moved in and you are the owner and you moved in halfway between, that doesn't work. That doesn't give you an exemption for the tenant living on the other half because you must have been in occupancy at the date that their contract, at the date their residency commenced. This is, this is deep weeds. Yeah, it's super technical and you can't like be creative with it. Like, oh sure, I get mail there. That's my primary residence. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. no, because you've got to realize you your to tenant is going to narc on you. You try to do that and your tenant's going to call you out. <laughs> so I have a question. I kind of, um, we've talked a lot about the exemptions or all of the like non-exempt exemptions, commercial. What, what um, I, I was reading something about, I think it was a rollback law or look back law or something. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? So as, um, as owners, we're getting the impression that this was coming, that this type of ordinance was going to be on the books. Let's say an owner said, oh, I want to get ahead of this. Okay, I want to get ahead of this and I want to do the increase. And bear in mind, the, I read an article that said the average rent increase, and this is where I get really frustrated, the average rent increase throughout all of California in 2019 was 3%. The average rent increase nationwide was 3.7%. Okay? The idea of, oh my God, everybody's raising the rent and you know it's, it's prohibitive and 30% rent increases, et cetera. It is uh, the exception rather than the rule, but those exceptions are the ones that basically create the headlines and the laws created based on headlines. Um, however, Let's imagine you've got somebody who said, you know, I'm getting the impression that there's going to be something coming, so I'm going to do a 30% rent increase. Mm -hmm. The look back was as of March 15th of 2019. So if you had a rent increase that went into effect anytime after March 15th of 2019, it must be in compliance with these new laws. And if it was, a 30% rent increase, starting as of January 1st, you have to dial it back. You don't have to give it back, but you have to dial it back to what your allowable increase is. Okay. So what happens if you decide as the landlord, you know, I don't think I want to do that, and I'll just wait until the tenants say something about it, and if they don't say something about it, then yay me. Then, and again, talking about our audience, if you've got an overpayment, all of that would be legally considered to be an overpayment of rent because it's an unjust increase. Therefore, if you ever served a three-day notice for non-payment of rent, your numbers are all mucked up because try to go back and figure it out. Adjust backward. Be honest. Be ethical. Because if you don't, it will only make your life difficult. And I think the key takeaway too is um, to our listeners, 
they're smart. So they know that you yeah. can't just go out there and start cheating with the law, right? With the gray areas. But then the people they work with might give them a hard time. And so to our listeners, like you have to be strong and you're the, the NARPM, The NARPM code of ethics and standards of professionalism are pretty clear about being ruthless yep. when it's necessary to fire clients who misbehave. And I say misbehave as if it's a kid who didn't do their dishes. Um, but the fact is that there are owners who think you can do things that will cause them trouble and will cause you trouble. And as it relates to some of this stuff, it is better to, you know, cut the cord and yeah. say goodbye than to get into the middle of something that is going to cause you trouble in the years to come. Yeah. Well, and most of our listeners will know like those types of owners that they already have that are more likely to try to pull a fast one on them. Oh, or... every, every one of them has got a list. Yeah. You can, yeah. No, every one of them has a list of six names. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's a very good point, I guess. Um, cause this is really good. I, I want to dive more into different nitty gritty pieces at some point. So we, I would love to pick your brain more. My, I guess my final question for you is with all, um, obviously I'm more familiar with the California legislation because I live in California. Um, do you see other States adopting similar things? Uh, I've seen a lot of points. At this point, you've got people in Georgia yeah. and in like New Jersey and in Kansas screaming, no, right. God, no. Um, but as demented as California is becoming, we are not unique. And we are starting to see in states like Washington and Oregon and Colorado, and even places like Florida, um, where these types of tenant protections are being either instituted or considered. Um, there are some states where rent control laws are constitutionally um, void. The state constitution says, you may not, and it's the 23 states that you may not. And all of our owners who have properties in those states are like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then they laugh at California. Um, but the problem is that some of these situations that we find ourselves dealing with in California, yes, they trickle outward. Furthermore, the news stories trickle outward to other states. They become national headlines. Um, and they start weighing and influencing the dialogue in other states. And the tenant advocacy groups, no matter what state you're in, the tenant advocacy groups become more and more energized, more and more active, more and more radicalized to basically even in those states where you've got rent control void laws to figure out what might we be able to do to gain an advantage. So, is this the wave of the future? God, I hope not. Um, but, yeah, and I realize you were saying, well, last question, um, because we, I've got papers, uh, we can oh, go on oh, yeah. for hours. 
and bore everybody to tears or else terrify them. <laughs> um, Maybe a little bit of both. Uh, these types of regulations, no matter what they are, no matter where they are, bad for owners. Ultimately bad for tenants. As I said, 3% in 2019, our average rent increase of 3%. Under rent control, under this ordinance, it will now be eight plus, okay? Tenants are going to get higher rent increases as a result of this. Yeah. Bad for owners, ultimately bad for tenants. The more complicated this gets, the better it is for property managers. Because the more complicated it is, the less capable owners are of being able to do it themselves. And it's still a profitable and honorable business. It's simply a matter of keeping your nose clean and not getting yourself in trouble. Yeah, and given that um, this is kind of spreading, right? Um, this idea of like, hey, we should do something, we should pass, pass legislation to protect renters without a full understanding of the economics of it, right? Like, what can property managers do within their states, within their local communities to educate the people who are writing this legislation um, so that they're not passing laws that in, in fact actually hurt the causes they try to, you know, to protect or um, serve? These types of laws are happening at all levels. They're happening at the state level. They're happening at the county level. They're happening at the city level, depending on where you are. Um, get involved, okay? Um, CAA, California Apartment Association, is very active politically. And being a member of CAA, if you're in California, is actually critical from two directions. One, you help them. Two, they help you. And there are many people who are realtors, and the Realtors Association, again, in California, most everywhere else, the Realtors Association is very um, involved and influential in terms of making decisions and influencing laws that happen at the state and local level. The Realtors Association's um, priorities are not always quite the same as the housing provider property manager's interests, but they're close. Um, uh, social media, a, a subject came up just in the last 24 hours about how equipped we, and when I say we, now I'm talking wearing my NARPM hat, how equipped are we at NARPM to be politically active energized and motivated to be able to influence these types of decision-making processes locally, statewide, national. Um, and we need to do more on that count. Um, NARPM is very good at many things, but we as fee-based, primarily single-family residents, property managers have a very unique perspective and a specific set of needs associated with what we are looking out for, who we are looking out for, what we expect in terms of laws. And we have to become much more politically active within NARPM to be able to make the types of uh, influences that we need to make. And so um, 
Are there any final insights that um, you want to leave our listeners with in light of all this all this, um, all this chaotic things that are happening. Like I go on Facebook right now and it almost like every property manager in every state has a story um, that is like making them fearful about what's to come. Um, so anything you can share with our audience? Um, you got to realize we just scratched the surface. Yeah. Okay. We didn't get anywhere near the depth of the detail of exactly what this law actually includes and implies. Um, one of the challenges of being a property manager and one of the blessings of NARPM, before I got involved in NARPM, and it was many years ago at this time, but before I got involved in NARPM, I felt like I was alone and nobody else understood what I was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I met my tribe. And they understood what I was dealing with and they understood the difficult owners and they understood the difficult tenants and they understood the regulations that we have to abide by on a daily basis. What can you do? What can you as a property manager do? If you have any doubt, if you're having a bad day, if you need somebody to talk to and just scream at and say, this is all ever nonsense, call one of your friends call another NARPA member, call another property manager, call somebody because honestly, they will understand and we are better together than trying to do this alone and be unsure of how to navigate. Very well said. Very, very well said. So Keith, thank you so much for making time for us today to talk about rent control. And I know we barely scratched the surface. And so to our listeners, expect us to put out deeper dives about this topic in the yeah. future with Keith. Um, as the story progresses too, he's going to have a lot more stories for us. Hopefully and, they're and not our, all- And our audience may too. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of stories. Yeah, and if you have any specific questions, you can contact Keith. He's um, available through email. You can go to his website. If you reach out to us, we'll connect you too. There you go. Yeah, um, and if you, I would say to our listeners too, if you have any stories that you just think you want to share with us, please let us know because we, like he said, um, we're all in this together. Obviously, Marie and I aren't property managers, but we love to be able to help you guys. You are our support network. Yes. That's what we like to, Thank we like you. to try to be. <laughs> so thanks for listening and see you next time.